Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World. I'm Steve Tibbett. The podcast today is about the tax justice campaign and the interview is with the chair and director of the Tax Justice Network, John Christensen. Um, I have worked on the tax justice campaign in the past with John and I think it's fair to say he doesn't fit the mould of a sort of professional... NGO campaigner. He's trained as a forensic auditor and an economist. He's worked in many countries around the world, including a period of working in offshore financial services. For 11 years, he was economic advisor to the government of the British uh, Channel Island of Jersey. Um, and 2003 became what was described as the unlikely figurehead of a worldwide campaign against tax avoidance. So he is very widely published on the issue, but also has taken part in many films and documentaries, radio programs, but he has led that campaign and really started it um, in the UK and it's spread throughout the world where he's linked up with other sort of similar minded campaigners become one I think one of the most successful campaigns has been in recent years on an economic issue uh, sort of those big economic issues have slightly gone out of fashion in campaigning um, and it's also on the unlikely issue of tax which you could almost say has become a sort of trendy issue in campaigning um, not one which certainly 10 or 20 years ago you would have really thought would have come to the fore uh, is obviously quite dull in some ways but also an issue where you know paying your fair share of tax that wasn't a, a phrase that was around 20 years ago certainly it was uh, much more something you would try and get away with or people would talk about you know not paying their tax so there's been a real turnaround but I think still a long way to go uh, the sound isn't great on this recording I don't know why not sure something went wrong with the mic but I think it's worth listening to because John is really um, an interesting character and as I say doesn't fit the mould of sort of professional campaigners in NGOs okay hope you take a listen Okay, well, thanks, uh, Joel, for taking out time out of your busy schedule for this uh, interview. Um, so uh, yeah, we, we go back a few years, don't we? Um, but uh, when I first met you, the that ta- the tax justice issue, I don't even know if we were calling it tax justice then, but this sort of tax issue uh, was just sort of bubbling under, really, but it wasn't, it, didn't, it hadn't broken through at that point. What happened that made you kind of step into the breach and, and, and uh, thinking about launching a campaign on what we now call tax justice? There's a long back story to this because I'd, I've been involved with Oxfam since the 1970s, late 1970s, and we've been looking at how to shift the development 
debates around the world towards uh, what you might call a, a post-aid, a post-debt situation. And no one in the big NGOs in Britain or anywhere else was taking tax seriously. But if we wanted to move beyond debt dependence and wanted to move beyond aid dependence, we had to start talking about having sustainable and fair tax systems. Um, but tax was a no-go area. So I've been quietly building up a little network of experts and law, law specialists or accountants or tax specialists, economists from around the world. And um, at that time you and I met, which was the early 2000s? No, I think so, yes. About that time, I think. Yeah. Um, it was clear that there was an appetite to move on uh, to something new. Uh, we were building up towards the uh, uh, Make Poverty History campaigns, um, but there wasn't a sense that, uh, that anyone was talking about what happens next. Um, and uh, it was a very good time to start talking about, well, let's have sustainable tax systems and let, let's bring tax into the economic justice and democracy debates. So it was as much anything else timing, but I've spent the previous 30 years building up little networks of people who knew a lot about this and felt very passionately about it. But you, in your day job at the time when I met you, you were still doing, I think, political risk or economic risk. Yeah. And you, before that, you'd been an advisor to the government of Jersey but, and worked in the financial sector. Yeah. But So what made you sort of jump over into the campaigning space? Obviously, what you were doing before was probably more lucrative, I dare say. Yeah, yeah. more lucrative. But bear in mind, in the late 70s, I was with Oxford. Um, and at the time, there was a very small group within Oxfam, fairly radical, who were looking at systemic causes of poverty. I was the youngest person by far in that group. Uh, and we were looking at what was happening to, uh, for example, Africa and Latin America as well. So it was clear it was disappearing by the truckload, and it was disappearing into these spaces, which we call tax havens. And no one knew, no one had been systematically studying these places, no one really knew how they operated. So... I was in my early 20s and I thought, aha, here's, a, here's an opportunity. So I went off, I'd already uh, trained in forensic audit. Um, I did a degree in well-trained uh, agricultural economics, uh, precisely with this in mind to look at where these things fitted into this brave new world of globalised financial movements. And then I headed off home to Jersey. Because you might remember, I'm a Jerseyman. So I had a really good entry point to work inside the finance industry. And I got a job with a company called Deloitte's accounting firm. And I worked inside their company and trust administration division, um, where I could see exactly how their clients were shifting money out of Africa and Latin America. What I didn't expect was that I was then going to get recruited. I was headhunted into a job as economic advisor to the government of Jersey. So here you had a radical campaigning type like me ending up heading the Economics Advisors Office for the Government of Jersey, which is one of Britain's main tax havens. Um, didn't expect that, but it was a very useful uh, and quite lucrative, but nonetheless it was good from a career point of view to have that experience of working inside the Government of a Tax Haven. Because when I left, Oxfam then asked me if I would help to then to work up a report on how tax havens 
hit developing countries. And that report, which was published in June 2000, that was the report that triggered a lot of interest around, around, around the world in, in tax haven. Before that, no one was interested. It just didn't seem to make any connection. I had, I had the head of a, an NGO, a major development NGO, say to me that she didn't understand what tax was to do with development. But what we had to do was change attitudes and say, look, if you want to actually have democratic states able to deliver health services and infrastructure and education to their people, then you've got to have an effective tax system. Yeah. Well, it's one thing to try to convince those in the development sector that tax is important, and people like me and a lot of my colleagues got it, I think, quite quickly. But at the, at the time, I don't remember there being a great sort of public interest, and that came later. What was it, do you think, that switched on the public interest? Was it the financial crisis? Presumably that was, that was part of it, though. Yeah, and the financial crisis was a big part of it. But behind, you know, before the financial crisis, we've been doing a lot of work at, at, at grassroots level because as a campaigner, I'm, I'm at my happiest. Not so much doing the, the kind of advocacy work in Westminster or Brussels. I'm at my happiest going out there and talking with grassroots organisations. I mean, last night, for example, I've done Southampton. Tonight, I'm going to be done in South East London talking to a community group with screening a film there. So we've done a lot of work um, around this country, around France and, and you know, across Europe, building public awareness. So when the crisis happened, the financial crisis hit uh, Britain uh, and um, you know the government coming in in 2010 imposed austerity, we were in a position where we could say, look, this is a political choice. This is not a necessity. You are choosing to give these tax breaks. You are choosing to not tax multinational companies. You are choosing to uh, to go to go easy on taxing the very rich. Um, but and then you're hitting the poorest people. Um, this is a political choice, not necessity. That rang bells. And then something happened, which was uh, terrific. We had activists hit the streets. UK Uncut hit the streets in London, and that took the message around the world. And I was amazed at the response because I, I, I was still going around this country and other countries and I could see that everybody, everybody I met, whether they were coming from the, the left of the political spectrum or even the right, were saying, actually, we agree, we agree with this. Uh, and that forced the Conservative government in this country and in other countries to backpedal a little bit because we got, we'd won this argument, the tax avoidance and tax evasion, was actually uh, the result of political choices to not have effective tax revenue systems, for example, and to go easy on all that, uh, and the sums involved were huge. What would you... So if we take that sort of narrative going from, if you like, the early 2000s through the financial crisis and, and as you described it, the, the grassroots work that you've been doing, at some point, tax sort of made that leap over into being a sort of, if you like, the, you know, the bit of a development issue or a techie issue or an issue that was about economic policy to something that was suddenly on the front pages, it seemed like, almost every day. Um, and that, you know, conversations in the pub had changed from being, you know, I hate paying tax to, well, don't you think that rich people should pay more to pay? There's some sort of switch that happened. Yeah. Yeah, 
Well, I mean, we knew that we were up against a big thing because there was this culture of, you know, everyone loves the, the National Health Service. Everyone wants their kids and their grandkids to have um, good education. We all moan about the state of the roads and the railways in this country and in other countries, but no one likes paying for it. And that's what we, all we heard all the time. But actually, when you push on the issue, most people accept paying taxes as the price that we pay to have the health service. And they want the health service. It's, it's, there's been the drip, drip propaganda over decades coming from poisonous newspapers um, against tax. Bearing in mind, these poisonous newspapers belong to billionaires who won't pay tax. Um, I think that people got it when we started, you know, we did investigations, Starbucks, Amazon, Google. When you start looking at these really powerful companies making shed loads of cash and not paying taxes, people just understood this is fundamentally unjust. We're paying more tax. This is, this is unacceptable. Um, and as I said, it wasn't just people coming from the left in this country, Labour voters, Conservative voters were saying, we don't like this because there's a rule of law and paying tax is part of the rule of law. So we're able to tap into that sentiment as well. And we did it quite blatantly, you know. Uh, we accused these people, the, the tax avoidance and tax evaders, of going against the fundamental rules of society and of democracy. Yeah. Did, you, did you ever sort of look at the playbook, if you like, of those other successful campaigns I'm thinking about? Obviously the debt campaign would be the closest comparison, but you know, there's also landmines and and various other sort of high-profile campaigns going back to apartheid or even slavery. I mean, did you make a conscious decision to go and look at those other campaigns, or did you just sort of go for your own plan and your own fire? Oh, no, we looked at lots of different approaches. But, uh, you know, my instruction, we are meeting. The we here was European NGOs, uh, and a whole load of trade unions and so on. We had a meeting in France in November 2002, and I walked away from that meeting with an instruction to create a global movement. And, and I was given 400 Swiss francs as a donation from the Swiss organizations at that meeting to create a website, and that was it. Um, so we, to begin with, you know, we, we had to look at who'd been doing what and how, how they succeeded. Um, and I looked at lots of organisations that operate globally, Greenpeace, Amnesty. I spent quite a bit of time looking at the anti-slavery uh, organisations because they're kind of, they've been doing it for a hell of a long time. They really know how to tap into not just research networks but also communications networks. So, you know, we looked at a lot of very successful campaign organisations. Along the way, I... You know, I tapped into advice. David Hillman, for example, at Stamp Out Poverty, he was always happy to give lots of advice. Uh, and uh, Anne Pettiford, it's the debt, on the debt side. Um, but we had to go our own way, partly because what we wanted to do was to create a global movement without too much coordination. We wanted to have tax justice networks in every country in the world, which we're not there yet, but, you know, we've made a hell of a long... Uh, we've made a lot of progress in the last uh, decade or so. And we didn't want to be sitting in London or anywhere telling them what they should be doing in Nairobi or in Lima. So we, first we wanted to create a brand, we wanted to have some areas where we had a common uh, platform of, of uh, specific goals, 
but otherwise leave it very much to national chapters to decide their priorities and how they'll operate. And that's been quite successful. Um, so, you know, inspiration-wise, we looked at lots of uh, uh, different models. What we didn't want was to have a centralised, highly controlled, highly coordinated approach. Yeah. But what I, did, what I wanted from the start was to actually create three networks, not one. Yeah, and we're there now. So we've got a network of researchers, including professional people, who will give their advice free of charge to, uh, or largely free of charge, to campaigning organisations anywhere in the world. Then we've got the campaigning organisations. They, they campaign under the banner of the Global Alliance for Tax Justice. And they're more coordinated because to run global campaigns, you actually have to coordinate your activities. And the third part of the network, and I'm very proud of this one because it was very much an initiative I wanted to do for the start, was we created a training program for investigative journalists. Nick Patterson hates that. Yes. And uh, it's called Finance Uncovered. And in association with the Centre for Investigative Journalism in London, we've trained over 200 journalists. Many of those journalists have been involved in Panama Papers and pa Paradise Paper uh, investigations. Uh, and that's the way, one of the ways in which we get our message out across the world. Yeah. Well, you mentioned uh, some of the leaks there, that, that the various leaks that have been documents over the years. Uh, how much is that? Because well, I remember doing some research into, into tax for various organisations many years ago, and one of the problems was you know, getting the information because of its nature to sort of uncover uh, what was going on in various companies is very difficult because you know the secret because of the secrecy itself. So, how how important have those leaks been to the raw material of your campaign? The leaks have been mega. Without them, it would be very very hard. And there's several leaks I'd like to really uh, pinpoint. One was the leak. Uh, called LuxLeaks, out of PricewaterhouseCoopers in Luxembourg. That was just astonishing. The journalists who received the data sets, two gigantic hard drives, called me and a, 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 an accountant called Richard Murphy across to Paris to look at it. He just received these data sets. He said, is this stuff for real? We looked at it. It took about four hours or so just to, go, just to kind of get a feel for what was there. He said, is it for real? I said, yeah, it's, it's for real. This is the biggest story you'll ever handle in your life. This will make your name globally. He was a young guy um, called Edouard Perrin. But I said, what this shows is how a world-class accounting firm, PricewaterhouseCoopers, colludes with its clients and with the, the, the Luxembourg government to create anti-market deals which are kept totally secret you've got all the evidence and the clients here are massive some of the biggest multinational companies in the world this is a, a meta story which would change the nature of capitalism uh, because as we've seen the European Commission had to react to this by investigating those stories and has come down in favour of uh, these deals uh, against against the deal, but in favour of our argument, that the deals were anti-market. So, do these do these uh, leaks? Uh, uh, you know, presumably they're somewhat inspired by you. Are they ever engineered by you or your network? Never appeared. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
I know many of the people done either, either have done leaks or uh, have been involved in them in one way or another, including the journalists. Um, I encourage it. I think that it's um, a healthy and important part of democratic processes um, and criminal investigation, because um, in most cases what we're seeing, what's being exposed, is if it's not illegal, it should be illegal, it's only legal because the laws are bad in particular countries where these things, the tax things are happening, but it, it shows the way in which our elites are attacking our democracy, attacking our tax systems, attacking societies as a whole. And the best way, I, I, I don't think we should be ashamed of fighting back, quite the opposite. I think as campaigners, our job is to fight back. Um, and fighting back includes breaking the secrecy, because if these people are so cowardly, they do, do everything in secret places, the only thing we can do is to burrow into their little secret holes and dig the data out. You know, so you, you described a situation where you're getting information about some very powerful people, sometimes very, you know, economically powerful, even politically powerful, and I dare say both at times. So do you ever get, do you ever sort of, presumably you feel, you know, that the, the pushback from those elements, you, you, get, you feel it publicly in the media, etc. But do you ever feel that privately? Have you experienced, you know, sort of private pressure or... Uh, you or your colleagues ever felt under pressure from the state or governments, countries, regions? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, um, it, it's been quite tough, and the pressure comes in several different ways. I, I just talked to myself there, I would say some of my colleagues have, have been taken to court, they've faced libel cases, uh, they've, been, uh, they've faced professional disciplinary uh, hearings uh, on totally spurious grounds, in my own case, I come from a small island, Jersey's a small island, I used to be a big fish over there in a small small pond, I faced ostracism, I've been called a traitor, I've been arrested and harassed by police, um, uh, bullied, I had death threats made to me in Luxembourg, it was ludicrous by a banker who said if I ever came back to Luxembourg, he would personally organise me to be killed, I mean, some of it's just stupid beyond belief. Um, but I think the, you know, on the plus side, um, one of the great things about running campaigns like this is you meet an awful lot of really decent, fantastic people who are doing astonishing things, and that's a privilege. Um, uh, and I meet more really good people than I face really bad people, so, you know, it's very much on the plus the side. The balance sheet, as it were. The balance sheet's good. Good. Okay, we're just going to take a short break now, um, so we'll be, we'll be right back. with uh, John Christensen from Tax Justice Network talking about the incredible campaign that he's run for the last 15 years. Um, John, we were talking before the break a bit about um, 
um, about some of the sort of you know opposition you'd faced, and but also some of the you know good people that you've met. What what is it that um, keeps you going over over sort of the longer game in campaigning? And because you know a lot of people in this professional world of campaigning that we're both involved with to some extent. You know, they'll they'll tend to spend you know a couple of years on in one organisation, then move on. Um, what is it that keeps you interested over the longer term? Do you think? Um, I've always had a passion for political economics. You know, what makes the world go round. So that keeps me intellectually curious. Um, but at the kind of the, the core of um, the tax justice network of what I think has driven us, I think the core of our success. In, in, you know, the view we took right from the start, we're not going to change the world in a couple of years. We're, we're here to weather change um, and to roll back um, many decades of um, political attack on the very idea of tax and democracy. Um, and that's something I feel quite passionately about, because if you're going to have democratic forms of government, then you must have tax. Uh, you must have tax not just to pay for essential services because let's face it, governments can issue the money if they want to do that. You also have to redistribute to tackle inequality, to tackle poverty. You need to use tax systems to intervene when markets fail um, as they do very regularly in all sorts of areas, whether it's tobacco or alcohol products or hydrocarbon products. We all know that markets don't price many things correctly um, and so um, you know, I feel passionately that if we're to restore confidence in a more progressive kind of politics we have to get the conversation back to how we can tax effectively to achieve those progressive outcomes and it seemed to me in the 1980s and 1990s that progressive social democratic movements in Britain and in Europe were frightened stiff of even talking about the three-letter word um, because they somehow had allowed themselves to be tarnished as tax and spend. Well, if I was a politician, you know, might I see my job as to tax and spend. It's not something to be ashamed of. You need to tax well and spend well. Um, and, I, you know, I feel very passionately that part of our goal was to get tax back and into the conversation, into the political conversation, um, and, and, and do it at grassroots level. Uh, and I think we've been successful at doing that, not just in Britain or in Europe. I think our biggest success has been in Africa, where tax was never really that much of a discussion come election time in Kenya or South Africa. All sorts of wonderful promises were made, we're going to give you new schools and new roads and this, that, but no one ever talked about tax. But that's happened now. Yeah. Um, I suppose it's, it's, a, it's a controversial issue in Africa, partly because of um, a, a feeling amongst some that uh, African leaders tend to sort of squander the wealth or, you know, steal the taxes. There's still that mentality, and you know, I dare say there's some truth about it in some places. But no, there is, but also there's a colonial legacy which you know we, which you can't dismiss of taxes being raised by. British colonialists or the uh, French colonialists or even Portuguese colonialists and those taxes were used to uh, to pay for the colonial administration and there was a lot of looting of resources going on at that time. So there's a long history of you know, 
that antagonism towards the African type. I think you know, we see in many African countries a recognition that like, they're, move, they're moving towards more democratic governments and the governments are more accountable and the citizens are taken to the streets and saying, you know, we've got the money spent on our schools. I think you, you, you described the situation there both, you know, as you say, in the UK, Europe and beyond, where you've managed to change the conversation about tax. Uh, and you've done that very successfully. What specifically has changed because of the campaign, do you think? Um, uh, you know, obviously, uh, not being too technical about it, you know, because there are some very technical things that have changed that I know a bit about, but uh, for our audience's sake. Um, but you, could you just sort of summarise what you feel has changed and and what's still to do on the to-do list? Um, and I think big picture-wise, tax is no longer the thing which no one dares discuss. Um, uh, and we've made the discussion that is happening out there a lot less technical. It used to be handled by technocrats, tax accountants and tax lawyers, and no one dared discuss with them because they were pretty arrogant and, you know, uh, uh, not particularly interested in the justice side of things. That's changed. But we wanted to come at it from uh, specific things. We wanted, to, above all, to tackle the tax havens because the tax havens have been used for decades to uh, help big companies and the powerful elites not pay tax. And they can get away with it because because of the secrecy these places, these tax havens provide. So we, we targeted uh, several measures which have now been adopted at a global level um, to tackle this offshore secrecy. Simple measures like uh, having automatic information exchange between national authorities. So if you set up a bank account in a tax haven in Switzerland, the Swiss authorities will now share your information automatically with ancient revenue customers here in Britain. Well, that's progress, and you know, we didn't even dream it would happen 10 years ago, but we're there now, it's a, it's a global standard. Multinational companies must now provide accounting information for every subsidiary in every country where they operate. Well, that's great, because it means they can no longer create one set of accounts for the national authorities, the tax authorities in Zambia, which uh, are completely meaningless because you can't actually see where their profits are being made. And, you know, the mining companies have been giving the Zambian authorities tax accounts showing they make no profit in Zambia, they make all their profits in Bahamas. Uh, so clearly a nonsense, but that, that little bit of extra information has made it easier for the tax authorities to figure out what's being done to shift profits out of Zambia into the Bahamas. So we're making very clear, steady progress. Um, transparency measures are very hard for politicians to argue against and the multinational companies because they hate having to do this, but they can't really give good reasons to the public for why they hate transparency. You might say that you, you've sort of broken one of the golden rules of campaigning, which you haven't had, which is that you haven't had, you know, like, you, you know, drop the debt or end apartheid or stop slavery or, um, you know, campaigns with very clear, s simple goals, that even though you, there might be steps along the way. W with you, you've got this idea of tax justice, which is a, you know, it's, it's more a sort of a collection of things that make up, you know, a whole a change in direction, if you like, of, of government policy. 
So, but yeah, and you recognised, everyone recognises this campaign has been incredibly successful, but did you conceive of it, or could you conceive of the campaign differently, or would you just see it as a series of steps along a route? Can you, can you say a bit about whether you feel that you're remoulding campaign? I wouldn't like to think that we're remolding campaign. Uh, we're certainly quite opportunistic, um, but um, opportunistic in the sense that when good stories come our way, uh, we can use those good stories to um, leverage particular political asks. Um, so uh, some, about 10 years ago, the Guardian newspaper ran a really good story on how bananas are traded to shift their profits to tax havens. That was the first big, really big investigation mm -hmm. into, into uh, what's called profit shifting. Um, uh, but the response politically uh, in Europe and in Washington was yeah, just a few bad apples, bad bananas in this case. So we just hit back one investigation after another, Starbucks, Google, Amazon, the whole lot, and, uh, and Apple. And said, you know, it's not just one bad apple, it's a whole load of bad apples here. Um, and I think that after a while, the public was so so with us and so angered by austerity and angered by the political inaction about this uh, that it just forced change. Um, but I think that we have to adapt all the time. I don't think we've you know we always wanted to campaign around this issue of competitiveness. Now, let me just unbundle that word, because you hear politicians talking about it all the time. You hear leaders in uh, this country talk about Britain must be tax competitive or must, we must have a competitive regulatory system. It sounds so, so right. Who wouldn't want to have a competitive regulatory system until you stop and think about it for longer than three seconds and realize that this is actually toxic, what they're talking about. What they're saying is that in order to compete to attract capital to this country, we've got to undermine our social protections, we've got to get rid of our environmental protections, forget about workers' rights because we've got to do this in the name of competing to attract capital. Um, and and it's, a, it's a very political thing that there's been said here, it's a political justification for undermining all the struggles that we've had in democracy for the last hundred years. So this is the, uh, and it's, it, we see it all the time in, in uh, uh, in the, on the tax justice side, um, because uh, we knew right from the word go that we might win a few battles around tackling tax evasion and tackling tax avoidance. But what would happen was that the, the, the wealthy and powerful would then say, we'll abolish the corporate income tax entirely, which is exactly what this current government would like to do, and many other governments. Trump, as we've seen, you know, he's bringing the rate down significantly in the United States. Macron's talking about doing it in France. Merkel's done it in Germany. Abe's done it in, in um, uh, Japan. Um, and, and all the time they're saying we must have the most competitive tax system. We've ended up in a situation where we're effectively subsidizing capitalism of welfare state companies. And this is where we've got to take things now. And, and you know, I think that is the big goal that I want to go for now. Yes, and just in terms of sort of how you would sort of bite that off as a, as a piece, you know, something like automatic information exchange, which you described earlier, you know, you, you, you know, although that was a big step and it was ambitious, you could see how it might happen. 
tackling cap tax competition it sounds like a very sort of big thing to tackle. Um, so how, how do you do it and how do you make that um, a sort of realistic campaign goal or objective? Again, this isn't going to be something that we can do in two or three years. We've got to engage in weather changing here. Um, we've really built up a good research community, a lot of expertise in this area. Uh, my friend and colleague Nick Shackson's writing a book uh, on the subject, uh, which will be coming up in 2018. I just started to work on a film on the subject. I think it's a case yet again of going out there and finding out who are our allies around the world, who can we link up to. On the tax justice side, when we were looking at tax avoidance and tax havens, there was a natural kind of fit between our work and the work of uh, development NGOs and trade unions. Trade unions were very interesting because they'd actually been tackling this for a very long time. Uh, in this country, for example, many of the trade unions from the 1970s onwards knew that big multinational companies were fiddling their profit figures in this country, saying, we're not making profits in this country, we're making our profits in the Cayman Islands. So when it came to race negotiations, the companies were coming forward and saying, well, we, this country isn't profitable. If you push too hard, we'll close this plant down. And the, the unions suspected all along that that wasn't the case, but they didn't have the accounting information to prove it because you know they couldn't quite see how the transfer pricing mechanisms were on the property, where the profits were shifted to the Bahamas. They couldn't, they didn't have access to that information, so they were natural allies. Yeah, I think we have similar natural allies on the uh, competitiveness side. Because, as I said, uh, whether it's environmental uh, protections or social protections or workers' protections, all of these are being thrown away in the name of competitiveness. So we should have many allies that we can link up with to challenge this idea. Um, it doesn't make a country any more productive. Britain has one of the most competitive, to use that language, tax systems in the world that attracts no inward investment at all. So it's really not working, it's a failing project. Mm. So in some respects, this is, you know, we're pushing against an open door here. You describe the, the different partners and allies across the world, and you've obviously got the Tax Justice Network, sorry, the Tax Justice Network operating in different forms in different ways around around the globe. Is there, how do you, at some point, I guess, when you when you start something like this, you have to sort of, you have to either, you have to make a choice about how much you try and control all of that and how much you just let the thousand flowers bloom. How much is that, has that been a, that tension been an issue for you and or a problem uh, in terms of people going in different directions or, or the messaging going in different directions? I'm, I'm not a very controlling person. I, I'm very much of the let the thousand flowers bloom type um, because I, I, I feel very strongly. The best way of running something like this is to encourage people to use their initiatives to empower different countries to do whatever, you know, to, to focus on whatever their priorities are, to do whatever they do best. Um, the kind of network that we envisaged at the start was a network of people who've got quite a lot of specialist knowledge and experience who would give that knowledge and experience a way to work with partners on a very cooperative basis but not to tell them what to do or how to do it, to say, okay, so what 
are you trying to achieve and how can we help you with that task? And I think that's, that's been at the core of our, certainly been the core of my values, I think it's been the core of our, all the team's values right from the start. I, I've always felt that any other way, like trying to control or prescribe, wouldn't work. When you, when you first spoke to me, I think you were, you were trying to drum up support and you said you obviously got some support from Oxfam. But uh, the big NGOs hadn't come on board. Then they did eventually Christian Aid, Action Aid, and others. Uh, Oxfam came back to the issue, um, and a few others sort of dipped their toe in the waters. And at the same time, you, you know that you've also had, I think, support from some of the big sort of non-NGO uh, campaigning platforms of the advanced thirty-eight degrees of this world. What, how do you deal with this sort of waxing and waning of these different groups coming on board, then disappearing? You know, how helpful is it to have, I don't know, Oxfam engaged in something like this versus, you know, Avars? And does it does it really, you know, you've got to continue whatever they do. Does it really does it really matter? Does it buffet you one way or the other having these different groups? Of no, I, I, I don't think we've ever felt that. Um, the biggest problem we've had has not been so much working with organisations like Oxfam and so on. All of these organisations bring a different thing. So Oxfam's looking at tax justice through the prism of inequality, which is correct. You know, absolutely great, um, very positive. I think they've done some really good and pretty hard-hitting work in this area. Christian Aid and Action Aid have um, also done some really good, very positive stuff. The biggest problem has been with funders. Uh, uh, Funders coming, funders going, funders losing their nerves, uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, and that's kind of forced us to work in a particular way, which is, you know, for me, uh, when I was chief exec, it meant that we had to be really resilient. We kept our fixed costs to an absolute minimum. We, and that forced us to work, and I think it was positive, to work with our organisations to get the other organisations who already have their membership bases and their communications uh, teams and so on, to get them to do the heavy lifting and for us to advise them on how they might shape their campaigns. That's been great, not just in Britain but around the world. We've been working with many different NGOs and faith movements and trade unions uh, because they already have their grassroots movements. And I've always felt that the way to change the weather is to work with grassroots first and then do the political lobbying later on. Um, uh, and the last thing we wanted to do was to create a new movement from scratch with a huge membership base because that, having a membership base then imposes a very, very heavy fixed cost of administering that membership base. So we didn't go that way at all. So I'd say that by and large our relations with the big NGOs have been very positive. Uh, and yes, been some waxing and waning, but actually tax justice has lasted the course, and I think it's going to continue for the foreseeable future because the situation globally, you know, post austerity now with Trump and so on, uh, has actually worsened. Well, John, I hope it does continue, but I hope you continue to have success with it. And um, just thanks very much for your time. Thank you. Thank you.